0: Hi, and welcome to the Ready for Polyamory podcast. My name is Laura Boyle. I'm your host. Today, uh, we're here to start season seven with an interview with Jessica Fern and Dave Cooley, the authors of PolyWise, their upcoming book, which is here to talk to us about a variety of different strategies for uh, transitions in our polyamorous lives particularly the big transitions that come with shifts to a polyamorous paradigm from an, a monogamous one, but also to talk about shifts in the way we do our non-monogamy, right? So I get to have a pretty nice interview with Jessica and Dave, uh, and I hope that you guys all enjoy it. Also, uh, in general, sort of housekeeping things here with the podcast, we're going to have 20 episodes coming up this season, releasing on Thursdays. I hope you guys enjoy them. I have a lot of great guests coming up this season. Everyone from uh, these guys uh, to the multi-amory folks. Um, also, we've got uh, people you may not know of. My friend Minna Dubin, who wrote a book called Mom Rage, is coming on. And we've got a lot of episodes that aren't about books as well. I'm talking about jealousy and NRE. Um, with Violet Fox, I've got Evie Lupine coming on later this season, and I'm talking about polyamory and DS with Sinclair Sexsmith later this season, as well as a host of other guests. But without further ado, I'm going to get into my interview with Jessica Fern and David Cooley about their book Polywise. I hope you guys enjoy it. There will be links in the show notes to where you can find their book as well as to a couple of other resources that we mention and reference. Thank you guys so much for being here with me. Uh, As I said before, I am here with Jessica Fern and David Cooley, the authors of PolyWise. Um, You all may know Jessica from her previous book, PolySecure, uh, and the PolySecure workbook. Um, And you may not know David yet because this is his first collaboration with Jessica in print.
1: That's so, right. In print.
2: Yeah, <laughs> That's good caveat. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, would either of you like to introduce yourselves a little bit to folks who
1: may not know you? Why don't you start, Dave?
2: Yeah, my name is David Cooley, and uh, created a, a model of conflict transformation for people in intimate relationships called restorative relationship conversations. It's a model that's based on the principles of restorative justice, which was a field that I worked in for many years before switching gears and doing this. Um, It's got several other modalities integrated into it. Um, Things like IFS and narrative theory, somatic practice and awareness. It's kind of a hodgepodge of things, but really steeped in those principles that people come to expect with restorative processes. Mm-hmm. And I have a small private practice that I run for people who are struggling with relationship issues, communication dynamics, relationship ruptures, and need help working through those in a way that's really practical and, and solution-based. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: and so I found this idea of applying restorative justice to our relationships really fascinating. and I guess we'll get to that as we get into the conversation. Further, that was my favorite part of the book because it was the thing that I hadn't thought of applying, but that made a lot of sense. Um, but we're we're trying to do introductions. And I'm <laughs> we'll get ahead the of the horse here. We'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. Um, and Jessica, I think more folks will have sort of known who you are because so much of the the polyamorous community got sort of taken by storm by Polysecure a few years ago. But if you'd like to introduce yourself a little bit further as well,
1: yeah. Yeah, I am a psychotherapist, and I really focus on working with people through um, trauma modalities, IFS, doing attachment healing, and then, of course, working with people that practice many different forms of uh, non-monogamy or non-traditional relationships, and I'm an author as well, and Dave and I will probably get into this too. We've been in each other's lives for over 20 years. We met in Northern California at massage school. (laughs) Neither of us practice massage anymore or you never practiced it at all.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Well,
0: and in a way, this feels like one of the many sort of concentric circles that ends up overlapping non-monogamy when I'm it, I'm like, oh, somatic practices and massage school and all of these things that it's like oh yeah, like a third of the non-monogamous people I know have big overlaps in these areas. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. That probably for both of us um, was the first real training in sort of body-based, mindfulness-based, semantic-based practices, you know, through the lens more of body work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that opened up the like, okay, wait, but what's the psychological aspect of all this that we're doing? Yeah right
0: picnic yesterday with a person who was like oh and i'm looking to run things in our community about more like mindfulness-based body work and these things that are based in my practice but that folks in our community might be really interested in and i was like oh it is all of us isn't it
1: yeah
2: (laughs) well they're 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 kind of small i mean when you talk about those concentric circles they're kind of smallish communities and i think they're expanding you know thanks Mm -hmm. to technology and the reach that information has now but it's interesting to be at a place like where we were 20 some years ago in northern california and you meet these people who are sort of moving in the same circles in the same communities in these small places where subcultures have a foothold you know people who are doing like you said somatic work are also thinking about different ways of doing relationships it's probably the first time i had ever heard of kind of a non-monogamous approach to, to relationships was there in northern california And so it's been interesting to watch the different places we've lived and seen those subcultures follow us, you know, like Santa Cruz, California, Santa Fe, New Mexico, Boulder, Colorado. Now we're outside of Asheville, (laughs) North Carolina, you know, Mm -hmm. Hawaii. It's interesting. There's just sort of all these connection points, you know, geographically and then philosophically.
0: Right. It used to be like these really small subcultures just used to overlap. And now, thanks to the Internet, it's. Massive reach, and I think Mm -hmm. that's been an interesting evolution in the 16 years I've been doing non-monogamy. That like a lot of these subcultures aren't as sub anymore. Yeah, it's it's been a strange evolution that like I've enjoyed watching. Totally. But anyway, sorry, this has been me gushing about the way the world has changed. (laughs) It has, yeah, yeah. in a positive way from my point of view. Um, But so I really enjoyed from your book in general the kind of way that you tied in a sort of large number of different theories and perspectives that i don't necessarily think of as necessarily tie. and i've just said necessarily twice this is my brain on not enough coffee um but uh that i don't always think of as tied into non-monogamy in particular when you think of sort of psychology and perspectives and you tied them in really neatly to how they apply to non-monogamy in a way that made so much sense for me which was actually what was done in Polysecure too right you applied these theories without all of the chaff of like having to read around mm-hmm. the, the monogamous perspective tied into it and I enjoyed that as someone who spends a lot of time going okay but what nugget of this still applies to me yeah Um, so thank you I enjoyed it Um, and so for my listeners you you can enjoy going and picking this up and not having to. pull apart the parts that don't apply to you, Um, this is my endorsement of this book hi guys um but. In particular, stuff like taking family systems stuff, and that's the IFS acronym that both of them used in describing their backgrounds right. for the folks who are not as over-therapied as me and so did not immediately pull that out. Um, that's internal family systems, which is sometimes called parts work. It's the idea of taking the different um, portions of yourself and identifying them and incorporating them into your understanding of how you as a person function and how portions of your history serve you as a person in the present uh, in the most basic sense in the most layman's understanding of how that (laughs) works um but so as a severely overtherapied person that is my understanding of it um but so the book takes this idea and applies it back to our comfort and sort of paradigm shift out of a monogamous framework into a polyamorous one. Um, and you the whole book is about this paradigm shift out of monogamy into non monogamy. And I thought that was a really great way to approach the whole idea. What made you guys take that approach for this book? Can you guys mm-hmm. share a little about that?
1: Yeah, um, I'll start if that's okay. Sure. And it just initially was something that I was seeing. Mm-hmm. Right, that as people were either opening up for the first time or as they were had been non monogamous or polyamorous for a long time, but then were coming in with certain struggles, right? Because the book isn't just for sort of poly newbies, right? It's for people all along in their journey. Um, but I was seeing a lot of these struggles were based in oh, you're still thinking in a certain paradigm, understandably so. It's the one we're immersed in, right? And it's not it's not, you don't just tell someone, um, hey, just think differently. Think in this new paradigm. Like it doesn't work that way. Right. So I was getting very curious of like, wow, how do paradigms wire into us our actual perceptions and our emotional reactions? And how do you undo that? <laughs> it's quite an undertaking. Right. So that was part of it.
0: Right. Like where does the movement happen and
1: how Yeah. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of the common complaints that people struggle with are their partner wants to open up and they think that means it's because they are not enough, right? That's a very monogamous paradigm. There's no judgment on that, right? Um, There's good reason to think that way, right? But the polyamorous or non-monogamous paradigm um, being with someone else isn't because your other partner isn't enough. It's um, a totally different reason, Right. So starting to have to translate from one paradigm to the next.
2: Right, yeah, absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No,
1: no, go ahead.
2: Yeah. I think one of the things, too, that I see in conflict work, um, which is my focus, is that often we're trying to guide people away from content. People sort of come into a process where there's a dynamic that they that feels really fraught and they feel really stuck in that and I think what's interesting about that is we're trying to sort of guide them towards an awareness of the meta process, right? And so it's often about what are the overarching dynamics that we have to focus on versus the content. So there's sort of a way we can see that the same patterns are leading us into conflictual situations. And so that's sort of taking a meta perspective that allows us to get a different view, sort of a bird's eye view on our own internal processes, which is unique and is related to paradigms. And so that's often a big shift for people to go from sort of thinking, okay, this is about me and you tussling over who did what versus sort of looking underneath that and getting more into stuff like attachment. Like what are the attachment sort of dynamics that are underneath this that is more process related. And so thinking about that sort of helps us take a bigger view towards what does make change happen. And often it's when we're able to focus back and look at overarching patterns of things. And that's more of a paradigmatic approach to to life in general. And it's kind of one of the coolest things to me about being a human is that we can make these huge shifts in consciousness. Um, But it's often the case that we're not aware of doing that. It's not something we do consciously. How many people think, oh, I'm going to make a paradigm shift here. We sort of do it in starts and fits. But if we're able to really zero in on what are the values that are sort of at the bottom of a paradigm and how do we move from those? It's what can, how, how can we expedite a transformation like that in our own consciousness by seeing, okay, oh, well, I'm actually connected to these values. These are meaningful to me. And they represent sort of this bigger, more global shift towards a different paradigm.
0: Yeah. And so you need to be able to see the system in order to identify like what the paradigm that is causing you to have a specific reaction is in order to be able to begin to see what the shift you need to make is before you can even start to make it. Exactly. And then once you've identified it, what's the shift that needs to happen? How can you begin to make it? and baby steps toward it
2: absolutely exactly exactly Mm -hmm.
0: and so i feel like for a lot of folks once they've identified it once they start making it there's still that moment of like okay i've identified it i've started taking these steps my emotions are catching up with the paradigm shift i've started making right that's a lot of what i see when i'm talking to people about this right they've gone okay me and my partner have made these choices we've identified what this this shift we're doing is we've said okay this is the like underlying issue that's behind one of us having more discomfort than the other and we said okay this is the systemic reason that one of us has this thing going on right We've made little adjustments to make that be a slower or more gradual whatever. But there's still whatever this is. We've said, okay, this is why. Okay, this is the big overarching cultural whatever that's causing the thing. So we know what the paradigm is. But knowing that that paradigm's there doesn't necessarily make your brain go, flip right Mm -hmm. knowing what the paradigm you want to get to is doesn't necessarily get you there
1: exactly for
0: some people that's the point where they go okay but does that mean that i'm just monogamous Mm -hmm. right and i appreciated that your book gave people like little sections of going here's your permission Mm -hmm. and just say okay i actually am though sometimes right like i can say we are just incompatible we are just one of us is just monogamous if we choose to be right there are costs to that but we can decide that those
1: costs are worth it
0: because i think sometimes books about
1: polyamory say like you can just try hard enough just keep trying reluctant partner just right right. you'll get get
0: better someday
1: yeah and that's not always the case Not always true right it's not always true and i think we're seeing this emergence of a new compatibility that people never had to contemplate in relationship before Mm -hmm. right we kind of all know maybe on a first or second date you bring up like do you want kids (laughs) you know or not right and that would be one right um and there could be others but this is sort of another real deal breaker Mm -hmm. um, for some people and and a lot of people they're in relationship they don't want to lose their partner so they're willing to give it a try Yep. And I see many people who they give it a try. It's not easy at all, but they do wind up going, I think I can do this. And I actually want to do this, even though they were initially really hesitant and reluctant. Um, and we can talk more about that. Often they identify the parts of them that are resistant. And we talk about that in the book. And as they work through those parts, they're ready to do this. But a lot of people can do all of that work and then come to the reality, the truth within themselves, like, oh, this isn't the structure of relationship for me. And that's a really valid choice. You know, we really wanted to make that clear. Um, And when I work with clients, I know Dave as well. It's like, yeah, monogamy is a valid option. (laughs) No one should be forced into this or feel like they're less evolved because Mm -hmm. it's not what they want yeah
2: and for yeah. some
0: folks it is finding a version of this that works for them yeah, and for exactly. some folks it's finding that there really is no version and mm-hmm. there's been a lot of like inter-community shaming of different ways of doing polyamory for yeah. for lack of a kinder way to say it yeah um and I try really hard not to do that despite having a kind of way over on one end of the spectrum way of doing things myself as somebody who lives alone and engages in a pretty relationship anarchist way of doing polyamory like people can be like oh but you don't do any of those things so don't you think that hierarchy is evil well i don't it just doesn't work for me mm-hmm. right like it, right. personally it doesn't function for me
2: and there's also a question of timing like sometimes it's not necessarily it is or isn't sort of good for you or not sometimes it's like right now in this moment it's not good the constellation of circumstances in your life have created too much instability or challenge and it's you don't have the bandwidth internally to navigate the attachment ups and downs that kind of inevitably come with working with multiple relationships and so it's it's another factor too which is important for people to consider
0: Well, right. And like, if somebody wanted to really fight with me about it, I would go like, okay, I'm entirely hierarchical. My children are my primary partner. Have a great day. Right. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's have a fight about it. And I will say you're 100% right. My children are my primary and you all are secondary
2: to them. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I mean, I think one of of the reasons why I think we wanted to put so many different models and and exercises to sort of chop this book full of so many resources was, Mm -hmm. I think there's a way in which sometimes it's the right tool, the right way of framing sort of a particular element of your experience could be the key to sort of you unlocking direct access to a particular need that was dormant or just sort of obscured from your own view. And so for me, so much of making these relationships work is about really connecting to the needs and wants underneath the tension points between us. And so any model that can help you get closer to a need that you have is really going to be awesome. And any model that also depersonalizes your challenges with a particular element of your CNM or your consensual non-monogamy journey mm-hmm. is valuable. You know, something like attachment. That's why the attachment theory is so powerful, or something like polyvagal theories, because it's illuminating sort of deeper elements of our the way our nervous system seems to function, which is a universal concept. It kind of cuts across a lot of the cultural and belief systems that we have about our differences and really unifies it's like okay yeah understanding our nervous systems in this way can depersonalize and help us depathologize the reactions that sometimes feel extreme to our partners um mm -hmm.
0: yeah exactly so if somebody can find a tool or a set of tools that helps them express what it is that's going on with them they might hit a version of this that really works for them so they don't feel like their resistance or their partner's resistance is a barrier to attempting this or to continuing.
2: Right. Or on the other side of that, someone's struggle with Mm -hmm. another partner's experiences is not something that's somehow personal. I'm trying to stop you or control you from having experiences. I'm going through attachment trauma or ruptures or challenges that are new potentially to somebody or they're not new, but they're really old patterns, but they haven't had that sort of context with which to hold it. That's just a little more compassionate uh, and a little more again, meta sort of taking the sort of, this isn't your personality necessarily potentially, and more of just something that has to do with your nervous system and the way that you particularly need security and connection.
0: Right, or it's something where they haven't had a context that they've experienced this in in 15 years, and then all of a sudden they're back in this state of rupture or of instability. And so it's not personal. It's we have purposely kept me out of this state of instability, and all of a sudden I'm experiencing it again, and that's why it seems so extreme. Absolutely. Yeah. And like that's not personal. That's my nervous system is going wild and figuring out how to handle that
2: right and so what are the need? and then from that standpoint what are the needs yeah mm-hmm. and
0: folks sometimes take a while to figure out what their needs are in those contexts because they haven't been in a position to have to handle that for so long and i yeah. think a lot of people underestimate what those conditions are going to be like
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think if we haven't come to terms and accepted those needs for ourselves, or if those are framed sort of negatively uh, from a societal point of view, if we're not, quote unquote, allowed to have those needs um, because of the way we've been brought up, then it's it's even harder for those to come to the forefront and negotiate those in a way that feels like it's collaborative or connective. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm
0: yeah so i really appreciated that so many different tools were put forward in the book and that each kind of set of them was cordoned off in chapters that made it really digestible because like i'm somebody who i need things to be in carefully uh blocked off chapters because otherwise i will blast through something put it down and not have internalized all of it Mm -hmm. um as a neurodiverse person who has hyperlexia i will like get to the end of it and go oh i need to go back and re internalize this in pieces or i will recall the names of things and not what they meant um so the fact that it was in very neatly contained chapters so that i could very easily take a chapter actually get the information put it down and come back to the next chapter was very convenient for me and i think that'll be useful for readers too because it's well put together and well this is my review Good. of the book as we go right laura guys. we
1: wrote it for you So, it,
0: <laughs> i think a lot of folks who listen to me actually relate to me on some level so hopefully this is the podcast for neurodiverse weirdos so yay <laughs> there are a lot of us um according to some studies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, guys, as usual, there are sight gags that you don't get to see because I refuse to release this video. But I am sitting here making faces for the guests.
2: And, and we're, we're enjoying singing. them. Yeah, right? we, we are spying. We're
1: making faces as well. Yeah. <laughs> we're having fun. Yeah. Um, But
0: yes, so I really enjoyed the structure, and I think that folks will like it, too, in terms of it being both easy to follow and well-contained tool by tool, um, and very carefully sort of explained in terms of individual ideas, tools, and then charts that outlay each individual thing. But like, don't take my word for it. Go get the book. (laughs) Um, So yes, are there particular... I mean, I guess you're not allowed to say you like one section of the book better than the others because you wrote it. You have to like all of it. But since you co-wrote it, maybe you can each have a particular baby section of the book that you liked the best. Uh, Or you can say that you liked the other person's favorite section. I don't know. How does that work as (laughs) (laughs) co-authors?
1: Well, co-authors, but you know, the ideas we brought to the table were different. Mm -hmm. so. For Dave's section, I did, you know, Dave makes this parallel between the punitive versus the restorative um, conflict resolution paradigms, right? And most of us have grown up up, um, and are surrounded by punitive conflict resolution. There's a good guy, bad guy, you know, Dave, you could probably say it all better. Um, But that to me, even as we were processing it and writing it was just like, whoa, here's another way to apply paradigm shifts and how interpersonally we don't even realize we're in this punitive paradigm around conflict with our partner of who's right, who's wrong, who's going to win. Am I winning? You know, um, and what does it really mean to have a restorative relationship and a restorative process? So I loved that part. Of, of Dave's chapter.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's a way of writing it in which, and this is something we've done in other collaborations where on the surface it can appear like sort of it's her voice, my voice, but the, the collaboration is so thorough. You know, I think we each really touched every word of the book at some point. And so for me, when I think about you kind know, of the sections or the the chapters that stand out, I'm thinking about, what feels like is is adding something that people need, and especially in the context of the work that we're doing. What does I feel like is the resource I've been wanting to give mm-hmm. clients, right? And so this book has sort of been that anticipatory thing. And for me, the chapter on differentiation just feels so huge, mm-hmm. right? And I, I think it's something that people, at least in my experience, don't have A concept to really work with. And I think it's a tool that, again, can be one of those sort of balms for what feel like on the surface intractable issues. And so as we start to understand the importance of differentiation, and seeing that sort of the other side of the coin of codependency and enmeshment, it becomes really awesome tool for understanding why at certain points in relationships, we start seemingly moving apart and the importance of that on some level is as people move towards themselves or back towards themselves after going through sort of a period of symbiosis. And again, I'm, you know, sort of referencing the book here, obviously, uh, and don't want to unpack all of that in the context of this conversation, but I think the move back towards some kind of individuality is something that's really important to have a frame around as something positive and valuable and ultimately, connective and strengthening or fortifying of intimacy as opposed to something that's really scary or inevitably threatening. And so for me, I think that's one of the reasons I really like um, that chapter in particular.
1: Yeah. Chapter on codependency. I think it is the biggest chapter in the book too. Is,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, right. Cause it's a really
1: important topic to cover
0: and to have something other than I know when I'm talking to people about it and in general, when people I know are talking about it, we're all throwing people at that one kind of cheesy medium article from like five years ago about uh, when you're opening up and you need to learn to like have a hobby and go out separately once a week right. so that, you, right, like we need something that's more formal and comprehensive than a medium article about learning to take an art class, right? Like. All right. take an art class for six months before you start dating so that you don't hate your partner for going on a date right we need something a little bit mm, bulkier than that um so it is good to have a real resource on this who would have thought um yeah so yeah
2: hopefully I, hopefully not too bulkier
0: I mean, it's a chapter in a book it's not an entire tome on it but it is it's substantial and thorough as opposed to like here go read 400 words on taking an art class before your partner starts dating um but yeah the idea stands of like being your own whole person allowing Mm -hmm. some intimacy with your partner as opposed to fusion (laughs) um yeah
1: symbiosis is the correct word but like mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's fusion. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's a lot more awareness around codependent or enmeshed patterns in relationship, but people are not necessarily clear, like, okay, sort of like we were saying already, like, okay, I'm seeing this paradigm, but how do I actually change? Right. Okay. I'm realizing I'm acting in codependent or enmeshed ways. What do I actually do to start addressing that? Mm-hmm. And even to depathologize. De-patholo- de-patholo- That was depathologized. Thank you. (laughs) Why? You know that there's good reason why we sort of get stuck into those patterns.
2: Right.
1: Right, Like all of these things start from a place of good
0: intentions. Nobody walks into relationships and goes, I'm going to do things that are horrible for me and my partners.
2: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: Like, and I think the kindness of that is notable. You guys don't walk in and go here. Are all the ways you're fucking up your relationship. That's not the intention of the book.
1: We do have a chapter on that actually, but <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's not like
0: here. Let's make you feel terrible.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, it is. There's there's so much sympathy. I mean, I think I'm so inspired by my clients, and there, there's so much desire to help them do it differently because as you say no one wants to be in conflict with intimate partners it's so painful and it's it it is i think it's inherently traumatic um because as we're wired as human beings to be in connection and when we're not we suffer mm-hmm. um and so i think this is one of the most direct ways to impact our quality of life is to learn how to manage these things with more grace and compassion for ourselves and for partners
1: yeah And even for people that actually are pursuing conflict regularly in their relationships, because that's the only way they know how to get connection Mm -hmm. or like get their partner's attention
2: Totally.
1: underneath that is still, I want attention. I want affection. I want connection. Right. And I just, this is the strategy I've learned is more effective, um, but it's not actually ultimately effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Right. A maladaptive strategy for seeking connection isn't the same as (laughs) wanting to harm their partners. Correct. And so like showing people that like oh you're going about this wrong isn't the same as being like you want to hurt everybody.
2: Mm -hmm. Even though it doesn't feel like that to the partner who feels like they're being harmed. Right. Yeah. So. mm -hmm.
0: And like I think generally people want connection and especially those of us who are in these relationships where we're trying to be in connection with multiple people really need the tools to figure out how to do it in the most kind of aligned way possible so that we don't end up flailing out in multiple ways and harming multiple people by accident.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things I think, too, what we we're trying to do is is bridge the gap in what feels like sort of a dichotomous set up in a lot of resources out there between, oh, you either have to fix yourself first and then you're ready for relationships or you do it all in relationships. And so trying to create a balance between work that you can do on your own to work on your own secure attachment, mm-hmm. right? And then also what can you do to sort of do that work in collaboration with others. And so hopefully we struck some kind of balance between that those two ways of working on generating secure attachment.
1: Mm-hmm. Or, in this case, like addressing codependency, right? Exactly. What behaviors, and then what is the relational dynamic to address as well?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, this idea of
0: there's a lot of like kind of people saying all of the time that you need to have kind of healed yourself before you can do a good job being in relationships. And I think being healed is sort of a mythical state that yeah. none of us are going to be in, but also. Working on being in a positive state for ourselves and our partners. And I don't mean positive in a like fake, no bad vibes way. I mean it in a like working to be a good version of ourselves in connection kind of way, right? Mm -hmm. So long as our partners are doing the same, right? Mm -hmm. Connective, not pulling away constantly sort of way. And I think so long as we're all doing that within our networks, there's a lot to be gained. Right. And maybe I've said that in the clumsiest way possible, but there's work to do on ourselves and in our relationships to reach that, as you guys were saying, and that doesn't mean like we need to do it all and be like, little angelic perfect beings in order to reach the ability to be loved or to be in connection right but it also doesn't mean that we show up in these relationships and go you haven't earned me at my best until you take me at my worst right like we don't get to show
1: up and just flail and be like
0: no i'm terrible and you deserve me like this
1: yeah exactly Healing's not a final state <laughs> right but i think also Many people feel that they're actually healed, or their insecure attachment with their partner or partners, and then it's not until a non-monogamous transition happens, or opening up, or a de-escalation, or an escalation of another relationship, that some of this stuff even starts to come out. Mm-hmm. Right? So people can feel like, oh, I was actually really in a good place, and I don't want the whole other dysregulation or certain traumas are emerging that like. I didn't even realize, right? Or it's never been like this before. So people can get very surprised too by um, some of these CNM transitions or the paradigm shift. Yeah, I think
0: nothing in life is as stable as people expect it to be. Yeah, right. And maybe it's just that I've had an unstable life. And that's why I feel this way. But like, if you take snapshots of my relationships every 18 months, it's been like a somewhat different set of situations, right? Something has escalated or de-escalated somewhere in the network, even if it's not to me personally, but somewhere in the extended network. And so I kind of anticipate that like someone somewhere in our network will shift and that will have to change how I feel about something. And so now I'm always like, okay, I'm happy with where I am, but I'm ready for something to shift. Mm -hmm. And I make the silly face in response to that because sometimes that's good and sometimes that's a little destabilizing.
2: Totally. I love that. And I love taking the concept of healing off the pedestal of sort of static possibility of achievement and really anchoring it in the uncertainty that feels kind of inherent to life. Like recognizing that healing is something that we're sort of always doing in flux in the same way that a relationship is the static concept that's hard to relate to in moments, whereas relating the verb is is much more useful. And I think that's one of the cool things about consensual non-monogamy is it's inviting us to really embrace uncertainty in a way that I think is powerful um, and teaches us to sort of be more agile mentally, emotionally, relationally. Which then requires a lot of us in a way that is sort of what you were saying earlier, Laura, is having a certain level of intentionality when we approach relationships, right? It's not that we're going to be perfect. But what is that intention to really be leading with our feelings, naming those, Mm -hmm. taking responsibility for our experience as it is, talking about and sharing our feelings and being open to hearing our partner's feelings, needs, and wants, right? And so for me, I think those two things really fit together nicely, like making healing a process, making relating a process that's always going to change to some degree. And we're always sort of working and negotiating secure attachment in those changing contexts, and that's our intention is to approach that, right, at a certain level and keep growing with that. And I think that's sort of the importance, part of the big importance of thinking about this from paradigms is that that helps set our intentions to do things differently. By thinking about things in terms of paradigms, we're able to sort of align our intentions to something bigger than sort of our reactivity. Mm-hmm
0: yeah i mean that all makes sense to me it has always felt like extended relationship networks are kind of like i don't know lake systems or weather right where if something goes on over here it changes the flow of water across a whole thing right some new river is feeding in or a storm happens over here and then everybody has something going on over here even if it's very small by the time it gets over here it affects it
1: yeah Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and vice versa and so it's not like it has to have a very big effect or like you particularly have to overly concern yourself with something that's going on three degrees out over here but you have to be aware in a kind of loose way and so I've always kind of had this sense of yeah you have to be ready to move a little if you're going to engage in that manner. And I don't want to like scare folks who are entering into non-monogamy from a monogamous paradigm, but like maybe no, but they are shoes, <laughs> like,
1: right. They are getting, people have to look at um, their relationship to control yeah. for sure that um, there is more surrender that we have to do in non-monogamous polycules. Where, oh, it's not just me and you. And therefore I have a bit, I have a sense whether it's real or not, you know, of having more control over what happens in my life, in our life. Whereas, yeah, when there's other partners who behave differently or do other things or have other things happen, we are more at the mercy of other people's decisions in a way that we might not be used to, right? Or might not like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Circling back
0: to the actual topic of uh, the book that you guys wrote and the tools that you sort of set up for folks to look at and use uh, to address the sort of shift in paradigms between monogamy and non-monogamy for folks and for folks to kind of understand how they can make these shifts and kind of even whether or not they can make these shifts, because some folks can't, I think thought that it was a really valuable book for folks who are making those decisions and for folks who are making transitions within their non-monogamous life. For folks who have, like I did for about two years between 2019 and 2021, gotten into kind of a rut in their non-monogamy and had a period of time where they're like temporarily in an identical period and then had like, oh, here's a big shift, right? Oh, everything's changing again that's also a paradigm shift, right? Had a moment where everything changed again. Yeah. It's a very similar moment, right? So I thought the book is also very valuable for folks at that kind of transition. Um, And I think the tools laid out in it are also sort of similarly really valuable for that. The chapters, especially on um, the restorative justice framework for uh, looking at how conflict can be less punitive and more kind of restorative and looking in at one another and the chapter on parts work I found especially valuable but like all of them are really useful especially for folks I think who are newer to this or having really big transitions in their lives currently and I hope that folks will kind of pick it up and keep it on their shelves even if they're not currently in a shift because you will be at some point great Um, thank you guys for coming and joining me
2: yeah thanks so much for having us it's great to talk to you
0: yeah, thank
1: you for having us.
0: Thanks so much to Jessica and David for being with me. Uh, you can find Pollywise in stores everywhere starting on August 25th. So I hope that you guys will pick up a copy. I think it was really great and I think you guys will enjoy it very much. So, uh, links to that will be in the show notes, as will all of the places that you can find them on the internet and in social media. As always, you can find me at readyforpolyamory.com and at readyforpolyamory on all of the socials. Um, Because Twitter is dying, I have included it in the list, but I'm not really on there at the moment. Um, You can also uh, find on the website information about Uh, Support groups that are starting in the beginning of September. You've got a few days to get in on those I've got one or two spaces in each of them still open There's one for polyamorous parents and one for folks new to polyamory Each of them has one or two spaces left as of the time that I'm recording this Um, So hopefully they're still there by the time I release this Uh, Then also, uh, I have classes coming up in mid-September And all that information is on the site under readyforpolyamory.com slash events. You can also, as always, find me all over the internet at Ready for Polyamory. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll be back next week. Um, check out the show notes for information on my guests. And as always, all of my stuff. Have a great day. Bye.